Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 108, JEDP, The Mount Ebal Defixio, and C.S. Lewis, Part 3. Episodes 107 through 109 should be considered a single subdivided episode. 108 and 109 elaborating on the claims initialized in Part 2 of our series. Last week, we began a discussion of two contemporary scholars critiquing the discovery of the Mount Ebal curse tablet, Dr. Christopher Rolston of George Washington University and Dr. Robert Cargill of the University of Iowa. These two men are certainly not the only voices raised in opposition to this find. But together I think they are representative of what troubles me most about the critical case. Over the next two weeks, I would like to specifically lay out what I believe to be their mistakes, as well as what they get right, in my estimation. In my first commentary on this find, episode number 52, I said about one of my critics on a previous episode that he, quote, had a tendency to overstate his arguments to claim more than the evidence and careful reasoning allow. This is not only a problem for unbelievers and atheists, but a fault into which theists and Christians can easily and all too often do fall as well. End quote. I tried to make the case last time that the critical opposition raised to this find was to be expected, as it is the nature of human investigation to proceed upon an axiomatic framework of shared assumptions when once such a framework has become widely accepted, that is, when an academic discipline becomes established as a discipline. When evidence is given that seems to contradict the axiomatic assumptions of an established discipline, the oft-invoked phrase, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, expresses well the attitude of any discipline's adherence. This response is both properly rational and potentially problematic, invoking a dialectic of boundaries. In order that science be science, and not all the other things that human beings do, it must have boundaries circumscribing it, separating the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Science from pseudoscience, astrophysicists from flat earthers. It is from the shared framework of assumptions and the body of research findings it has generated that the boundaries of a discipline are demarcated. One of the proper roles of disciplinary scholars is to protect their discipline from pretenders and cranks. This function, however, like all Aristotelian virtues, must be balanced, must seek a middle path between the extremes of failing to enforce the discipline of being too open to novelty, the vice of deficiency, and being overzealous or blindly adherent to disciplinary orthodoxy, the vice of excess. Boundaries, that is, must not be so rigid that they suppress new information from coming to light, and thus potentially threatening disciplinary assumptions, nor so nebulous that there are no enforceable boundaries at all. I am charging the critics of the Mount Ebal curse tablet with the vice of excess, being overly zealous in combating the possibility of novelty in their discipline. What is most important to remember in any attempt 
to properly adjudicate this dialectic of disciplinary boundaries is that a discipline should not be thought a body of truth, but rather a process by which to seek truth, a set of boundaries that through experience has been found helpful uncovering truth. Truth is an axiomatic value ideal of reason, and it grounds all human inquiry. Truth must be the ruling value, not adherence to a given set of assumptions and the body of research findings it has generated, what is called a disciplinary paradigm. Truth is the end, and a discipline the means. We can now proceed to an analysis of the critical missteps of Professors Cargill and Rolston as regards the Mount Ebal defixio. Returning once more to episode number 52, I said this. The academic critics of this find, such as Professors Israel Finkelstein of the University of Haifa and Chris Rolston of George Washington University, should be heard, as they are urging methodological caution and expressing healthy skepticism. It seems to me as though the Associates for Biblical Research is content to allow the evidence to speak for itself, though understandably they are being castigated for poisoning the well. Both Finkelstein and Rolston are critical that the scanned pictures of the text were not made available. End quote. Now, as then, I appreciate a healthy skepticism. But since the publication of the scans in the journal, I think the healthy has turned quite unhealthy. Soon after the appearance of the journal article, Dr. Rolston declared, quote, There are no actually discernible letters. And, quote, This article is basically a textbook case of the Rorschach test, and the authors of this article have projected upon a piece of lead the things they want it to say. End quote. This last, offered as a scholarly critique, is closer to ad hominem than a serious disagreement over facts. The unqualified, and dare I say deeply unsocratic, certainty with which the critics make their declarations on this find is telling. If it has become a media circus, these critics are the ringleaders, not Dr. Stripling and Vanderveen. Dr. Rolston is not here quite unhinged, but he is certainly not being cautious, circumspect, or self-aware. The following quote from epigrapher Peter Vanderveen's Facebook post of May 15th this year is quite telling. Quote, An extra comment on Rolston's claim of mere striations in the lead. Since my early youth, I have worked with lead and experimented with it. In more recent times, I have even studied defixios. And I can assure you, what we see are not mere striations. Rather, what we see is man-made, and incised with a pin or stylus. Who is Rolston to claim to opposite? Has he worked with this type of material? What is his experience in this specialized field? Although I respect him as a talented colleague, this is a totally different field which he himself previously admitted to me personally, is foreign to him. He preferred to leave this to others. End quote. Van Der Veen, for sure, is the more cautious of the two epigraphers who studied this tablet, but he has stood firm on the basic structure of this find, 
while not endorsing the more sensational claims of his co-epigrapher, Gershon Galil, who claims absolute certainty for his, it must be admitted, rather dubious translation. Galil is hyper-rationally certain of himself, and dogmatically inflexible. All characteristics shared in varying degrees by our two scholarly critics, Drs. Rolston and Cargill. I prefer the careful scholarly approach and the measured temperate conclusions anchored in a real study of the object represented by Dr. Vanderveen, who said this, The only thing we need is an open-minded debate, and not criticisms raised by folk who think they know, but haven't even struggled weeks and months with this intriguing tablet that is so difficult to interpret. End quote. What is so telling to me about the current critiques being offered is highlighted by the simple words Dr. Vanderveen wrote above. This intriguing tablet. The critics are not intrigued. Not, in fact, curious at all. They are dismissive and dismissive while steadfastly refusing to honestly take into account the whole story, rather than to nitpick at the parts, refusing, as Peter Vanderveen said, to be truly open-minded. That is rather anomalous for scholars whose lives revolve around studying the history of this region and its peoples. If, as in a sentiment Dr. Rolston repeats in various places, he, quote, would very much like to see evidence for the development of the old Hebrew script in the 10th century, end quote. Wouldn't this find, in Israel, on Mount Ebal, and associated with the altar excavated by Adam Zertal, and dated to 1250 B.C., with lead dating from that same time period, arouse some curiosity, something other than sheer derision? As I said last week, there is a dedicated and concerted attempt to discredit and shut down the serious investigation of this artifact that makes no sense unless you factor in some sort of defensive animus on the part of the critics or at least of these leading critics, who set the tone and trajectory for the majority. There is, that is, something at stake here for these critics. Admittedly, the media storm and sensational claims for this find as announced in 2022 provoked the ire of academic scholars and make it, to a certain degree, personal in defending their turf. I understand and even sympathize with those concerns. Dr. Stripling himself has said that he regrets and would not repeat that tableau. By all accounts, this was an aberration in his usually sober and reserved approach to his discipline. I am arguing, though, that there is ineluctably something more here. In his interview with Sean McDowell, Rolston, when asked about the possibility that he might have some biases or presuppositions which are influencing him, responded, quote, For me and people like me, it's facts 
and reason. And if it, that is, this find, changes the way that we thought things were, all right, that's fine too. Things change all the time. But you have to have the evidence. There's no vantage point that would cause anybody who's a serious scholar in this field to say yay or nay based on their presuppositions. It's all about the facts. End quote. What I am arguing here is that it is indeed all about the facts, and thus about who gets to be the gatekeeper through which evidence flows to become the facts. The yay or nay, then, is pronounced at a different level, before the facts, as it were. For facts are intentional and attentional objects. Chris Rolston is one such gatekeeper. Van der Veen referred to him as the Pope of American epigraphy. And Robert Cargill is bidding with all his might to be another. To begin to see what I mean here, we can take a final example of Dr. Rolston's interview with Sean McDowell. When Sean asks for a context in which to place this debate, Dr. Rolston lays out the history of written language. It began about 3200 BCE with logographic or pictographic systems, like hieroglyphics. About 1800, the first alphabetic script was invented in which letters stood for phonemes, or single sounds. This script was Semitic, but not Hebrew. The first Hebrew script that we have is 9th century, though some might try to argue 10th century. Dr. Rolston is not, by his own admission, an expert in Proto-Sinaitic script, the transition from Egyptian hieroglyphics to phonetic alphabets, which was first discovered in 1905. Its scholarship, with extremely limited examples, is thus still new, fluid, and uncertain, as is, when we are honest, though to a different degree, the history of written language Rolston presents. It is against this theoretical reconstruction of history, a plausible story that he accepts or believes to be true, that he weighs any claim that challenges it. This is the very nature of presuppositional disciplinary work. That's okay. That's what scholars do. But he should not pretend having no presuppositions by which he judges new evidence, and by which he admits new disciplinary facts. Archaeology and history are soft sciences. What we know should always be subject to revision by new evidence. Dr. Rolston's presuppositions may be hidden from himself and others in the cloud of, quote, what we know as a discipline. But they are no less real. To overturn the theory we don't need, contrary to what they always tell us, exceptional evidence. But just an acknowledgement that evidence is evidence, and that the theory, the presuppositional framework, is corrigible. Having said that, though, it is true that Professor Rolston is an expert in his field. What exactly should we take from this fact? When Socrates examined a public expert in Athens, he said, My experience was something like this. I thought that he appeared wise to many people 
and especially to himself. But he was not. I then tried to show him that he thought himself wise, but that he was not. As a result, he came to dislike me. So I withdrew and thought to myself, I am wiser than this man. It is likely that neither of us knows anything worthwhile, but he thinks he knows something when he does not. So I am likely to be wiser than he to this small extent, that I do not think I know what I do not know. Socrates concludes, precisely in line with modern empirical research on expert opinion, quote, because of their expertise in one topic, they, that is the experts, thought themselves very wise men in other respects, which they were not, end quote. That is, even when one does have a sort of real expertise, this all too often leads to arrogant overconfidence and grandiose claims. Continuing with Socrates, each of them, because of his success at his craft, thought himself very wise in other most important pursuits, and this error of theirs overshadowed the wisdom they had. End quote. I would encourage you to listen to our reading of Plato's Apology, from which this excerpt is taken on our Simple Gifts podcast, or our YouTube channel, if you are interested, and to once again Google, why are the experts so often wrong? Keeping this in mind, I would like to close this week's consideration of Chris Rolston's ad hominem that the Mount Ebal team were engaging in wish fulfillment, that is, a Rorschach test, with Dr. Vanderveen's careful, humble, detailed response on Facebook and the revealing behind-the-scenes history of the team. Says Dr. Vanderveen, I did converse with Chris Rolston before we went to press on the scholarly article, and Chris was even invited before I was to have my go at it. He was even invited to be the main epigrapher, twice, so we did not leave him out of the picture. But he did not take the job. He did not even respond to the invitation. Later, Chris admitted to me personally that he is not qualified for the task, not being an expert on proto-alphabetic scripts. He was glad that I took on the task, but encouraged me to take control and not let my co-epigrapher influence the results too much. We tried very hard, but this was a joint venture, and it is hard to meet in the middle so that all team members are happy. This is why I feel annoyed, continues Vanderveen. I took on the task. Chris didn't feel qualified. And now he claims to know everything about it, arguing what are scratches, natural movements in the lead, not having worked with the original and with the many scans and photographs at all over so many months as we have, end quote. Why didn't Rolston respond to the offer to be the main epigrapher on this team? Why the double dealing with Dr. Vanderveen? Why the arrogation of authority concerning a topic outside his own expertise, as he himself acknowledged? Perhaps the real wish fulfillment here 
is on the side of the critics. If by scholarly fiat they can deny this spark any oxygen, the, quote, facts of their speculative historical reconstruction will never face the potential flames of controversy, and they will have successfully maintained the status quo and their own positions in it. Perhaps the critics are right, and there is nothing there. Perhaps. Ignoring the facts of this find, though, its geographical and archaeological context, and denying any assessment but their own, does not seem to me to serve their discipline well. I would like to know, independent of disciplinary filters administered by the priests of a sacrosanct orthodoxy, what is actually there? Let the lead speak. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.